Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Press Gallery, the uh, Getting Schooled edition. This is the Edmonton Journal's Politics Podcast. And with me today, we have quite the full studio to start with. Isn't this nice and cosy? Guys, it's nice. It's very cosy. So nice. So with me today, we have city columnist Paula Simons. Good morning, Miss Emma. Hello. Opinion page editor Sarah O'Donnell. Hi there. Health reporter Keith Dryan. Hi there. And a special guest this morning, education reporter Janet French. Hi. <laughs> Let's just, and doesn't she sound excited to be with us? Hi, that was good. That was she's good. All, she's all business. So this week we're talking about what we might see in the next session. It begins Monday, party time, you guys. Um, I I always love it when session comes back in. It's like a, I do. It's too. like a political holiday to me. Yeah. <laughs> for like weeks and weeks. The nerd in me, yeah, loves it. Absolutely loves it. Um, we're going to talk announcements on health infrastructure and some movement by the government on Alberta's growing opioid crisis. But first of all, and I'm sure this comes as a surprise to absolutely nobody, uh, we're going to be talking homeschooling. Now, this stems from news this week that Education Minister David Egan abruptly cancelled accreditation and funding uh, for the largest homeschool association in Alberta. Is that right? Largest private one. Largest private one. True. Uh, After some apparent fiscal anomalies. Janet, you covered this in great detail. Can you go through uh-huh. uh, go through what happened here? The, the fiscal anomalies? Yes. Um, so back in 2014, when the PCs were still in power, uh, the bean counters at Alberta Education noticed that some of the practices going on at Trinity Christian were allegedly not quite following the rules. And, and the one that they flagged was that teachers who go around the province and check up on the homeschoolers and see you know what you guys doing in there and how are you teaching your kids they have to check in twice a year and the teachers that trinity christian was using were supposedly contractors and not employees of the school and they flagged that in 2014 and they flagged it again in 2015 and the government claims that nothing changed in that regard And when their 2016 audited financial statements came in, they're not quite saying what tipped them off, but something in there made them look closer. And then they asked for more documentation. And then the documentation they got back from Trinity Christian was insufficient, in their words. So then they sent in um, some basically investigators from Alberta Education to go out to Derwent, Alberta, and out to Cold Lake and look in the offices of both Trinity Christian and their contractor, which is called Wisdom Homeschooling. And they didn't find something, or they found something that wasn't happy. 
they found some things that concerned them enough to call the RCMP and call the Canada Revenue Agency. So uh, what they supposedly found were incidences where employees and board members were double dipping. So you can claim what's called a per diem if you go travel for work. And at the same time, they would be filing the expenses. So getting paid twice for the same trip, basically for hotels or meals, allegedly. Uh, And then they also found that there was a lot of nepotism going on in that it was mainly two families who were running wisdom and involved in Trinity Christian and that many of those families were approving the salaries for each other, uh, setting setting the salaries for other family members uh, and that those decisions were never going before the board of Trinity Christian. Now, this wisdom homeschooling, the the contractor, they have no relationship with the Alberta government. They're a a private Mm -hmm. business and they were making all the decisions yet Trinity Christian is the one, the only one that has the authority to determine and check up on how that money is spent. So there were there are more allegations too. I mean, one of them that is quite serious is that that they were basically shades of Mike Duffy renting back space from themselves right. at at hugely inflated rates, mm-hmm. far above market value for what real estate goes for in Derwent, Alberta. Uh, and there's an allegation too because money is supposed to flow back to the homeschooling parents so that the parents have resources to buy books and videos and and what have you. So the allegation is that they had retained almost a million dollars in funding that was supposed to have flown to the parents, to the kids, that never went to the parents and the kids. Right. They they were doing that by setting an arbitrary deadline, which they purportedly said on their website, Alberta Education requires us that you uh, tell us by the end of June at the every year, you know, what your expenses are and what we're going to reimburse you for, uh, which Alberta Education said is is untrue. Mm. And they were using that deadline to say, got to claim your expenses by this date or you lose the money and it goes into our general fund. Uh, And so that general fund grew and grew and grew by hundreds of thousands of dollars in unclaimed Mm -hmm. expenses. And meantime, there are allegations that that money was, you know, the the monies were then used for personal expenses, whether that was for liquor or for presents or, or the one that I think made a lot of people sit up and take notice is for family funeral expenses, which mm. are things that education public tax dollars are not supposed to do. Baby, now, babysitting. Right. So wisdom homeschooling. Uh, I've got to say, I did like this line in their response to that, which was um, called the allegations, partial truths amounting to calumny. I had to look that up. I've never heard that word being calumny. used. Base calumny. I mean, it's, yes. It's, it, it means defamation. It's quite an amazing word. What, so. what I think has been interesting has been the reaction to the education minister's decision. Right. Yeah. And I have been fascinated to see how in our stories and in our letters to the editor as well, some of them have completely dismissed the report. Others say, okay, if there are problems, this needs to be looked into. But they're quite outraged that this has been done with you know, instantly that the the board, the accreditation was pulled, and now they feel like they are out in the cold and they don't know what they're going to do in terms of their children's education. Now, Alberta Education has had answers for that, but it's been fascinating to watch these. Is it is it hundreds of families, thousands of families? There's 3,500 kids affected by just, this, right? Just about 3,500 kids who are being homeschooled, and it's it's not just in Cold Lake. Like they live from High Level to Lethbridge. They are all over the province. Yeah. Like, Did yeah. this come out of nowhere? Like for, for because they they were investigated, right? It's well, it's well, it all depends on your. I mean, I'm hearing on Twitter 
a, a wave. Sarah's right. I mean, the fury in the homeschooling community. They yeah. believe that they've been targeted ideologically, that the NDP doesn't approve of homeschooling, that they specifically don't approve of religious homeschooling, and that the NDP were spoiling for an excuse to shut down this board, which does provide homeschooling support for one-third of all the homeschooled kids in the province. So people are saying to me, if there was a problem, you know, why did you shut it down in October and not in June? If there's a problem, why did we get robocalls? And, you know, part of the problem is that the, the province has to act. I mean, you know, you can't just go on and on. This isn't like a school board where you can fire a superintendent or replace a trustee. This is a very, very small you know, basically two families running a, a private outfit, it's very difficult to say, well, you can't just put in a new administrator. There's hard to, it's hard to know how you solve this problem. Yeah, the, I, the, rules, the rules are different because when we've seen the education ministers have passed disband school boards, that's what they've done. They've put in a, a, a trustee, a supervisor to, to continue the functioning of the board and the district, but the rules are different for this, right? There are 45 other places you can register your child for homeschooling in Alberta. Now, not every option is the same. So I talked to one mom, for example, who wants to what do what's called the traditional method of homeschooling where she could just she's not confined to using the Alberta curriculum if she thinks that say Saskatchewan's art curriculum is better or something um, but uh, so not all options are equal but there are 45 other choices in this province and Alberta education says they can handle the there's the capacity within the other organizations to take these students in it's not a it's not a shutdown of homeschooling or a push away from homeschooling but, but you know you have to think about how this model works the whole point of having a uh, the, the way Alberta's system is set up is that if you're going to homeschool, you have to register with an official school board so that your kid is getting some oversight so that you can't be making up the, you know, a curriculum of, of, you know, whatever your ideological bent is without any kind of check to make sure that your kid is actually learning something. Uh, so the idea was that you had to find a school board and register with the school board. So what Wisdom and, and, and this group have been really doing is offering what you might call a board of convenience. You know how, you know, when, when tankers go out with a flag of convenience from, from Liberia, this is, I mean, the, the idea of the model is that if I'm homeschooling in Edmonton, I register with an Edmonton school board so that an Edmonton person can come and see what I'm doing. This organization was set up basically as, I don't want to say a front, that's a bit unkind, but you know, but if you're homeschooling in Lethbridge or homeschooling in, in Fort Vermilion and you're registered with this group, how much oversight can they possibly be providing? So remember that, that the organization gets funding for every single kid. So 3,500 children, that's a lot of kids. Meantime, the actual physical school only has about a dozen physical registered students. So, I mean, in some ways, this is an organization set up to be a board of convenience ideologically for parents who don't particularly want the kind of oversight that a more local school board might be able to provide. And we did touch on this earlier, um, the notion that, you know, government does, ha the NDP government has caught a lot of heat for this, th this idea that they don't support homeschooling, they don't support private schooling. Politically, where does this leave those guys? That is a very good question. Thank I mean, you. I do not think that the NDP meant to look like they were picking a fight no. with homeschooling. They have enough issues in education yeah. that I don't think they wanted to open up this whole issue about should homeschooling be allowed in Alberta, which is how some people who are just opposed to the whole philosophy of people not participating in the public system have uh, have, have painted this or used this opportunity to discuss that issue. 
I think they have to just deal with the, the facts on the, of this very specific case. They have to just deal with this particular matter and try to keep it contained in that box. But that's so hard, isn't it? When they when there is oh, that perception is. out there <laughs> that they are against this this you know it, fundamentally. And, and, well, but the people the people who are homeschooling, um, if you if you look at the Alberta Home Education Association webpage, the overlap between the group who are upset about Bill Ten and the GSA rules who felt that was too much government imposition of morals the onto them, alliances, the, yeah. the overlap between between them and the homeschoolers is substantial. So on the Alberta Home, um, home Educators Association website, they have lots of material about lobby your government, about the imposition of, of the Gay-Straight Alliance bill. And, you know, so they're, that, that group is already riled up. Yeah, and as Sarah said, they really didn't need to pick another fight with that kind of, that kind of, uh, section of the population you know the the people who are seeing a conspiracy here they're not wrong to believe that there are certain people within the NDP government who who are uncomfortable with this model and I want it to be said that I I support the parents right to homeschool people homeschool in this province for a whole variety of reasons not just for religious reasons Uh, and I think that parents do have a right to decide what kind of education their children receive. That said, if we want homeschooling to work and if we want kids to come out at the end of 12 years of it formal, you know, formal education at home, ready to go on to post-secondary, ready to go into the work world, there has to be oversight. The government has not just not just a right, but a duty to make sure that a board that provides homeschooling services is actually providing those services. And, you know, when I see parents saying, you know, this is an outrage, you know, our rights are being affected. No, no, no. The government is protecting your rights because if homeschooling doesn't work, if the homeschooling board is not functional, then your right to homeschool is actually under threat. You want your kid to be getting the resources. You don't want the board to be stockpiling a million dollars that was supposed to flow to you to provide educational supports for your child. So I say this as somebody who supports the right to homeschool. If the government doesn't step in and make sure that the boards that provide homeschooling support are actually doing their jobs, everybody loses. Janet, I was you, gonna, you are well, just I put my hand up, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Miss... I was going to say that the history of homeschooling, though, is one where they really fought for the rights to homeschool. So they, this is a group of people who feel like they're already on the margins, who worked really hard to get the right to have the ability to homeschool their children in the first place. So I think any um, any intervention or uh, step into that realm by government feels like persecution to them. Absolutely. Look, it's going to be interesting to see where this one goes. Janet, thank you so much for joining us for this uh this topic you're welcome and we'll let you go interview people probably about this again (laughs) (laughs) okay so now let's move on to the health side of things Uh, there's been a couple of developments this week yeah yeah uh well i guess we can start busy i have yeah yeah i guess we can start with the the health infrastructure story um but late last week i got a copy of what's known as alberta health services capital submission they uh, it's a report that they submit to the government every year, kind of outlining what their top priorities are, their most urgent infrastructure needs around the province. And there's a couple of things in there that were interesting this year. There's about $6 billion worth of projects, roughly. About 80% of that cost is Edmonton projects, which is an indication of how badly our infrastructure needs in this city have been neglected for quite some time. Uh, and a couple of changes. So. One of the things was on the Misericordia Hospital, and just 10 months ago, AHS was touting a 
a major redevelopment of the Misericordia Hospital, $2.5 billion, brand new building. Now they're talking about something called a modernization, which is a much more uh, smaller scale kind of uh, refurbishment uh, to keep the building open for 20 or 30 more years. Uh, and the reason AHS is taking this position now on the MIS is they feel like there are uh, too many other health needs, too many other big projects in Edmonton that they just can't handle all at once. They want to do a big overhaul of the Royal Alex. And they also want to build a new suburban hospital somewhere, either in the, the, uh, the northwest or the southeast. No, I got that mixed up. The northeast or the southwest. So that's very interesting that they're promoting those two other projects ahead of the Misericordia. So, and that's a tough one for the NDP because the NDP got a lot, made a lot of their political bones as an opposition party uh, advocating for the Misericordia. Yeah, even in a, in a in the by-election where Stephen Mandel was elected, uh, the NDP candidate held a rally outside the Misericordia. Yes, yes. new Miz now. That's it was, wasn't new Miz in twenty or thirty years. It was new yeah, Miz now. New Miz, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and and David Egan, as health critic, was was you know huge on this issue of the Misericordia Hospital. The problem is a twofold one: the Misericordia building is a mess. Uh, rebuilding a new hospital on that site is complicated because you. You know, you have a functional hospital there. Do you decommission it and build a new one? Yeah. I mean, what makes probably more sense than trying to retrofit it is to build a new hospital further south and further west, where that's where the population growth is. But uh, Misericordia is a covenant-run hospital, so it's run by the Catholic Health Board. Uh, any new hospital in the southwest might not be given to Covenant to run. So Covenant has a vested interest in trying to get the Misericordia upgraded, but frankly, throwing billions of dollars into a building that is deeply dysfunctional probably isn't the best use of resources, especially when the Royal Alec needs at least as much help, if not more. The Alec is a much more important hospital in the sense it's much larger, does a much wider range of services. It's one of the two major trauma hospitals. It's got uh, you know, the high-risk obstetrics. It's got all kinds of specialized services there. The need to replenish and update the Alex is, in fact, much more pressing. It's I don't know if it's much more pressing, but certainly it has been more pressing for sure. I think Keith's stories in 2014 showed us that it was it was one and two, right? The Alex was slightly worse in terms of infrastructure, but you're right. I mean, in terms of how the Alex serves northern Alberta, whereas the Miz is more of, I would say, an Edmonton hospital for sure. It's always tough call for governments, isn't it, though, to like figure out where they're going to spend health dollars because there aren't that many health dollars. I mean, the same thing is in Australia all the time. You've got like, do you build a new one? Do you upgrade the old ones? Do you uh, which service services do you provide which populations do you make sure that you service as well and, yeah. and, and the dollars involved are massive, massive. Yeah, yeah it's extraordinary how expensive these things are um, the new the newest hospital in Alberta the uh, the South Calgary Health Campus which isn't even that big a hospital 1.3 billion dollars when it opened in, in 2012 so now uh, you know a, a hospital of that size um, maybe a billion and a half dollars minimum to just build a new one mm. so you know and the fact in Edmonton that we essentially need well more or less three new hospitals uh, is uh, just it's it's just a bill that I, I don't know how we're going to accommodate right now. Here's what I think is frustrating though as an Edmontonian it is that we have known now for years that we need our hospitals like the Royal Alex like the Misericordia in whatever order to be upgraded and no government so far has committed to the serious investment that we need in the hospitals and you know as again I'm going back to Keith's reporting here on his broader story about provincial hospitals the, the same holds true for the smaller rural facilities the PCs back when they were 
in power made a strategic decision to invest a lot of money and capital in education. They recognized that we had a terrible, terrible backlog in terms of our schools. They were falling apart and there weren't enough of them in the suburban areas. And I think that um, the current government is going to need to come to terms with the fact that our hospitals in the capital are in exactly the same situation. They need to make a commitment, they need to make some choices, and they need to get going because none of this is going to get any cheaper the longer we wait. On the other hand, the amount of money in the exchequer, I mean, the thing is this government now has to has to hope and pray and, you know, do whatever kind of, uh, you know, uh, sacrifices to the gods to make the price of oil go up because otherwise nothing gets done and nothing gets built because, you know, nobody wants to say we need to raise taxes or we need to go deeper into debt. And yet Sarah's right. I mean, I don't want to downplay the structural problems at the Misericordia by saying, you know, when I say the ones at the Alex are worse, that doesn't mean the ones at the Misericordia are not huge. I mean, they've had you know, plumbing issues, flooding, things that really actually uh, impinge on not just the sort of the the pleasantness of your hospital care, but the safety of your hospital care. We can't, you know, we can't have third world hospitals. On the other hand, we need to make some really tough choices because community hospitals like the Miz built in the, you know, in the early 1960s, we don't make hospitals that way anymore. And maybe Maybe what's needed there is more of, you know, one of those urgent care centers that, you know, the kind of 24-hour public health clinic with with an emergency attached to it rather than a full-service hospital. I don't know. We've gotten we've gotten those in, you know, sure. We've got that kind of facility put in the outskirts of Edmonton. I'd say we probably need some real significant hospitals that can do the serious work I, that's my personal well, opinion well it is it is clear a health we, expert <laughs> it is clear we do need some new hospitals uh whether you know the the misericordia is to be one of those hospitals whether that's the place to put in a billion or two billion dollars you know that's uh you know remains to be seen we are we haven't actually seen alberta health services detailed plans on each of those sites so hopefully we will get some details on that coming forward but uh, i think sarah's right there the choices do need to be made and and we can't wait too much longer here well i mean speaking of choices the government's making and not waiting i want to segue then to the opioid crisis in alberta uh the government has made some announcements this week yeah just yesterday actually some interesting things yeah they're they're trying to come come up with some new tools to deal with the opioid crisis in alberta they're going to do some things around trying to get uh, more primary care doctors to um to feel better about uh, giving uh, opioid replacement therapy like methadone and so on uh train some more people to do that they're going to collect some more statistics they're going to try to deal with some prescribing habits from physicians but the i guess the the most interesting and probably the most controversial thing is they're going to be giving some fun to uh, some organizations around the province that are looking at putting in safe injection sites, also known as safe drug consumption sites. And so those those sites are obviously very controversial. Uh, The proponents say they do work, they save lives. Other people say, well, this is essentially the government facilitating criminal enterprise. Um, The communities where these things are located or rumored to be located, uh, they don't want them there because it attracts a certain clientele to the area. So this is going to be very interesting to see. The money that's being put forward is pretty small potatoes at this point, and the government says we're just going to explore the need for like a safe injection site. But certainly this moves the moves it down the road a little bit. Uh, and, and once you kind of get it going, I, I, you know, it certainly seems the government is interested in uh, perhaps getting some of these sites up and running. So Keith, this is the thing I didn't understand. I mean, a safe injection site like Insight in Vancouver works because there you have a very 
uh, you, you know, you have a clientele where heroin is the major drug of choice, and you've got a lot of concern about intravenous uh, disease. So you say, hey, come here, you can get a clean needle, it reduces your odds of getting HIV or hepatitis. Fentanyl, if you're, if you're taking it in pill form, I mean, going to a safe consumption site, I don't see... It's a completely different kind of thing. I mean, I mean to, to put it in, in, in sort of weird terms, I don't see the marketing draw. I mean, I can see why if I'm an addict, I'm going to go to a safe injection site because I'm going to get something. I'm going to get a clean needle and a safe place in which to shoot up. Why would I go someplace that is, you know, not any fun to take a pill? Yeah, I'm, I mean, that is a, a very good question. I, I suspect the, the argument they're going to make is if you are at all worried about what's in that pill, because honestly, fentanyl, we don't know what's in it sometimes when it's sold on the street. It's very, very strong. That's yeah. right. So if you go to one of these sites and you take the pill there and something goes wrong, as it often has, uh, hundreds of deaths in this province, then at least there is medical care. There are people with uh, uh, naloxone kits, uh, and potentially you can get your life saved if something well, goes wrong. I mean, I, mean I, understand, I understand that that's the argument. I just don't see that you're going to convince anybody. I mean, it's interesting. We have a case this week, which I think is going to be really interesting and controversial, where a young man um, uh, is charged with manslaughter after he allegedly provided uh, fentanyl to a friend of his. Um, you know, and, and in the moments before these guys you know, took their pills, they were playing video games together. I mean, this is, you know, as I say, if, if you are addicted to an injectable drug, I can understand why you want to go to a place where there is a nurse and, and clean supplies. I, I just think fentanyl socially Functions, different. functions differently and I'm yeah. not sure that the model which I support I don't want to say I don't want to make it sound like I don't support safe injection sites because I do but I think safe consumption sites I, I just don't know that socially the way the drug is used in the community is the same parallel yeah no I see your point I, I think psychologically the, um, the 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 fentanyl user is different than the heroin user for example and so hopefully the the money that they've set aside here is going to look at that very question you've asked: whether people will actually use these sites if you if you're uh, using fentanyl. Did they say anything more about going to a provincial state of emergency on this, like BC has done, declaring it like a public health they crisis? They said time and time again they're not going to do that. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's it's a no go at this point. I'm not sure what uh, you know what the trigger would be to to uh, to. Dic- declare a state of emergency. It is actually interesting. The number of fentanyl-related deaths actually is going down a little bit in the second half of this year. So maybe that's a sign that some of their uh, some of their measures are starting to work. Well, you know, and it may be that this is the kind of problem that flares up and then burns itself out. Um, because when you've got a drug that is this toxic, that is this likely to kill your customer base, sometimes these things, they have their moment. Everybody, t- you know, it's, it's the crisis of the moment. And 18, 24, 36 months pass, and the the drug loses its hold on the marketplace because, you know, because there's a lot of blowback if your product routinely kills your customers. So, you know, it, it may be that by the time we've, we've actually ramped up a response, the, the issue may, in, in a peculiar way, um, have, have burnt itself out. I want to move on now to the uh, beginning of the session, which is, of course, on Monday. Uh, it's already been extended by a week to the December 8th. It was supposed to wrap up on the 1st of December. A um, few things on the agenda. We've got new tax incentives by the NDP, a couple of those. Uh, sort of movement on the climate change file. 
reckon the power purchase arrangements is going to be a big thing because, of uh, course, that might that's come going up. to court. I think it might come up. Just, you know, call it a hunch. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. And <laughs> I, I, I'd almost been able to forget that over the summer. Oh, no, never forget, Paula. <laughs> never forget PPAs. Um, we're going to get some actual job numbers from the Alberta Jobs Plan, which will be interesting considering the pushback that the NDP got on that when they introduced it. Um, but what it, what do we think the NDP really have to work on this session? Because they're not necessarily going into it in a happy space right now between no. the carbon tax and the homeschooling and, oh, jobs and oil and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, well, the carbon tax, I think, is going to be, um, it, it's a constant drum that the, the Wild Rose likes to beat uh, and the PCs as well. And I, I understand there is going to be some legislation dealing with part of the um, the climate leadership plan, as they call it. Uh, I think uh, the um, the tax on heavy emitters is, is what's going to be uh, part of this legislation. So that, that'll certainly raise some eyebrows. I don't know if we're going to get another fiscal update at some point as well as there's another quarterly update coming. And those are always fun right now. Oh, so ouch. Those are, those are the things. Must dread those days. <laughs> yeah, those are the oh, things just. that the Wild Rose loves because it's just bad news after bad news. Absolutely. Well, I also think that as, as much as we're going to be looking at the session, two of the parties, the opposition parties, are also going to be having meetings, and that may pull a little bit of focus from what's happening at the legislature. You've got the Wild Rose having their annual policy convention this weekend, and then the week following, the Progressive Conservatives have a policy convention as well, with a leadership, leadership debate, debate in the mix on the one of the evenings. So that... Even though those are opposition parties, there's still a huge amount of interest in uh, that side of the political spectrum. So everyone wants to see, like, what will Brian Jean say? What will the policies be? What's Jason Kenney and Sandra Jansen going to talk about when they get up on the stage for that leadership debate? And will there be any uh, Unite the Right supporters for Jason Kenney rock up to the Wild Rose Convention this weekend? Yeah, I wonder if he's he's going to show up or some of his supporters are going to show up and Maybe. just cause a big <laughs> to-do right in the middle big of uh, that Red Deer Hotel. So. Maybe bringing his, like, blue... Pick up well, that's what I'm hoping. That's what I'm hoping you'll home. tell us in your reporting is like <laughs> about if there is chatter going on about that unite the right and is that yeah. you know undermining what Brian Jean is trying to do? Of course, yeah, I am heading down there in a couple of hours actually after we <laughs> we wrap up recording this, so that's going to be a, a happy fun party time. I wonder if they are going to be there, but then next weekend you're right, it's big leadership debate. Um, Jason Kenney, Sandra Jansen, who else, whoever else decides to yeah, actually Donna Kennedy put their money where their it, mouth yeah. are. Yep, yeah. that's going to be. I hope they live stream that. I'm not going to be there, but I could come up with a pretty solid drinking game, I reckon. It's interesting the timing, though, that the Wild Rose Convention is ahead of the PC Convention. Mm. And so depending what the Wild Rose does this convention, if they adopt some new policies or take a, a step to the right in some way, how is that going to affect what happens at the at the PC meeting the week later? So that's kind of what I'm interested to see, setting the stage for actually, I think, the more interesting meeting uh, coming up. Sarah, you have some policies in front no, of you. No, well, I don't. Anything I don't. exciting that well, you have I didn't. I didn't read the entire 68 pages in great detail, but I, I was I was looking for, uh, you know, this one struck Slacker. me as kind of interesting. It was uh, the, on the economy that Wild Rose members believe the government should, and the proposal is to, you know, so b balance the provincial budget over the course of a single term. Which, you know, that kind of thing. There's something in there about daylight savings time. Always oh, there. okay. Always I, a classic. I could, I could totally get behind and that. Then, you know, the but wild, then the wild also, would totally have my support on that issue. This would be no surprise, but, you know, one about uh, policy to repeal Bill 6, uh, the uh, enhanced protection for farm and ranch workers, and engage in judicious consultation with agricultural stakeholders. So there's there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, it, it runs it runs the gamut, but that's certainly, that's in the first half of the document.
it's, there's it's also a, my eye. a super fun one in there about educating cyclists on how to use the road wow as a cyclist i'm like bro i know how to use the road y'all but you know maybe that's just me as a cyclist <laughs> yes yes well that's you know education is always cheaper than infrastructure so. that's true bike lanes are very expensive um i think that's all we have for uh, politics eh yeah we'll wrap it up there let's wrap it up there it's been a long one um Let's move to our regular segment, <laughs> Good Stuff from the Gallery. Uh, Keith, have you got something there in front of you? Just a couple of things uh, from the New York Times, uh, two pieces on Hillary Clinton, which I found quite interesting. Um, it gave uh, give some insight into how she became Hillary Clinton. Uh, one is called How Hillary Became Hillary uh, by Robert Draper in the New York Times. And the other one is The Road Trip That Changed Hillary Clinton's Life uh, by Amy Chozik. Nice. Sarah? Oh my God, you've got New York Times Well, that's as well. what I was just wondering. I was just racking my brain to think if I could think of something that I wanted to recommend that wasn't New York Times. And my second choice also came for the New York Times because if you happen to miss the full spread of all of Donald Trump's tweets, that was quite spectacular. All the, all the people Donald Trump has insulted. Yes. Um, or that Donald Trump insult generator on the internet. Have you guys seen that? Yeah, I, I made myself some. It was kind of awesome. <laughs> That's so, my good stuff. Claiming yeah. it. So, so I'll I'll still make my recommendation because Keith went for the Democratic side. So I'll make my suggestion from the New York Times opinion section: "The Lonely Life of a Republican Woman" by uh, S. E. Cup. It was an interesting read, and uh, I would recommend that because we're only a few days. Okay, mercifully, almost just two weeks left in this presidential election. So soon, it will all be over. I have something entirely different to recommend. Okay. Uh, it was a, a most extraordinary piece I read this week from uh, PBS on their website about the hookworm. I know this sounds weird, but I had no idea that the American South in the uh, latter part of the 19th and early 20th century suffered from an extraordinary hookworm infestation and the hookworms made people anemic and unable to work and unable to be educated properly and it spurred a whole lot of horrible stereotypes about the south which were grounded in the fact that people were infected with hookworms when they went through an amazing uh, a radical public health reform to wipe out the hookworm in the southern united states it completely changed the economy and the politics of the region and I thought it was such a fascinating piece because you do not think of, you know, a, a bug, a parasite, as having that profound an effect on a region's economy and on a region's sociology. Well, I never thought that I would say uh, that reading about a hookworm sounds very interesting, but it, it does. It was, it was just a great, great piece, and I was happy to have something about politics that wasn't mm. about Donald Trump, but was about... There's nothing wrong with having a recommendation about Donald Trump. <laughs> but, but you know, but it's something about something about, about par parasites that mm. suck the blood out of the body politics. It so. is Halloween. That's, so. Yeah, that's <laughs> I did think true. about recommending Spooky, a piece about tapeworms and dieting, but I decided against it. So thanks for bringing up the worm. Oh my god, you guys, this is gross. So I'm going to wrap it up right now. Um, Paula, Sarah, Keith, photographer David Bloom, who's going to put uh, some of this up on the EdmontonJournal.com. And thank you, Janet French, for uh, joining us. She's out in the newsroom now doing other things, but uh, I'm sure she'll hear this. So, yeah, this will be available at EdmontonJournal.com, uh, also at TuneIn Radio, iTunes, and our SoundCloud channel. This has been the Press Gallery. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we'll be back this time next week. Have a good weekend.